The United States presidential election is only a couple days away. And uh, I think that for any of you who haven't been completely isolated for the last year, it's been very apparent just how divisive and angry this country has become at each other. I have not been alive long enough or participated in enough political elections to be able to speak with um, personal experience, but older folks that I know that I'm close with have almost all unanimously told me that they have just quite never gone through an election quite like this. Just in terms of the fear, the hatred, the divisiveness, the worry, what people are telling me who have more experience than me that they really do feel like every four years this country just grows further and further and further apart. And so during this time when so many people, both Christian and non-Christian alike, are feeling anger, fear, anxiety, and worry... I wanted us just to be reminded of some general truths, some general political uh, uh, principles, if you will, that I think will help guide our emotions and our spirits through this next week. I don't know what the country is going to look like by next Sunday. I don't know what it's going to look like five years from now, ten years from now. But there are things that God has given us to anchor us no matter what our country looks like. No matter what direction our country goes, We have a word from God that helps us to cope, to understand, and to live in that time. And so this is going to be sort of a mixture of principles and reminders from a political and biblical perspective. And so what I want us to do, I've selected a passage that I think is particularly helpful, and it's the passage we just sang. We just sang Psalm chapter 2. I want us now to preach Psalm chapter 2. If you would open your Bibles to the second psalm. Psalm chapter 2, although the text itself does not identify David as the author of this, uh, the New Testament does. Acts chapter 4 identifies David as the author, and Acts chapter 13, I believe, even says that this is the second psalm. Uh, So we know that for the Jewish people, they knew David was the author and that this was the second psalm in their psalm book. So we are going to David's psalm, Psalm chapter 2. And we will read and preach the whole chapter, so if you would begin with me at the very beginning and follow along, for these are the very words of God. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. 
For his wrath is quickly kindled, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, the goal of the sermon today is to do two things. First, I want us to find out what is the meaning of this text, what's going on, what is the text communicating, and I want to give you three ways that this applies, the meaning, once we ascertain the meaning, three ways that this applies to us in this divisive political time. So let's understand the text, and then once we understand it, how does this help us? How does this comfort us in our political season? So in terms of the meaning of the text, as we could do with every Old Testament meaning, there's, there's, to a certain degree, there's two meanings to this, because the Old Testament is types and shadows of the new. So there was sort of an original purpose, an original meaning, but as we will see, that it actually has a New Testament meaning, a fulfilled meaning, in New Testament terms. So let's just be very brief with its original meaning. This is likely what we would call a coronation psalm. A coronation is when you, it's, it's, it's the ceremony where you, uh, you, you set a new king over the people. It's when you crown a new king, the king is coronated. So David likely wrote this psalm to be repeated whenever a new king was being set over Israel. Because if you just go through the text at a surface level, this text is ultimately about the nations raging against who? The Lord and his anointed. And his anointed is who? According to verse 6, he has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. Zion was the holy city, Jerusalem. So this is about the Lord anointing a king in Jerusalem and the nations raging against that king. And then there's this element of the king, the purpose of the king is to defend the son who the book of Exodus tells us is Israel corporately. When God first calls the people of Exodus, when he, or the, the people of, out of Egypt, he tells Moses, Israel is my only begotten son. And he speaks of Israel as his son. And so this, on the surface, this text is about David's descendants, his, his kingly descendants, and the purpose of the anointed king to protect and deliver Israel from her enemies. And David was familiar with this story himself. David, after becoming king, was in a constant state of defense. This is why David wrote so many of the Psalms. And this is why so many of David's Psalms are about his enemies crushing in around him. Because if you read the story of David's life, you will find that he was constantly at war with pagan nations trying to overtake him. And oftentimes even civil war. Factions within Israel herself fighting against David. So David was no stranger to political turmoil. He was, no he was no stranger to a divided nation and to pagan nations who hate him and hate the God he stands and believes in. So this would have been a very comforting coronation psalm, a reminder that God is the one who has set this king here. God is the one who anointed this king. And God is the one who will protect Israel and deliver justice to the nations. But we know that David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had in mind something here far beyond Israel when he wrote this. Psalm 2 is ultimately not about Israel. And we're going to see that in just a minute. 
But Psalm 2 has a much broader application, and it is ultimately about God and Christ and the authority Christ has over the nations, the victory Christ will have over the nations, and the people Christ has that he will protect. So let's go through this again, and we're going to focus on the fulfillment of this text, the substance of this text, and what it's really actually pointing us to. The text begins with the rebellion. Scene one, the rebellion. Verse one, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The scene is set. The nations, all the nations of the earth are raging. They're angry and they're causing turmoil. And they're plotting. They're scheming together. And what is it that the nations are raging about? What are they plotting? The kings of the earth, so we've got the nations as a whole represented. And then specifically, the text gets more specific and talks about their leaders. The nations are all plotting and raging. And their leaders specifically, the kings and the rulers, they have come together, they take counsel together, and they are all specifically antagonistic to the Lord and his anointed. The nations are raging against God. They are plotting and taking counsel together against God. And what specifically is the end goal of their schemes? What's the end goal of their rage? What's the end goal of their plots? Well, verse 3 hypothetically puts the words into their mouth. What is it that they want to do? Let us burst their bonds apart. Who's the there? The Lord and his anointed. Let us burst the Lord and his anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What is it that the nations want? Autonomy. The nations desire autonomy. They know that the creator God has authority and rule and jurisdiction over them. They know that they ultimately owe their allegiance to God. They owe their obedience to God and they don't want to obey. They want nothing to do with God in their nation. They want to cut the cord, to sever the tie, to drift God into the ocean and be their own autonomous island. We're the gods here. We make the rules here. They want to be free from the jurisdiction of God, to sever and cut those cords, severing their relationship from God. That's the rebellion of the nations. That's the rebellion of the world. But we know, specifically, that this is not just rebellion against David. This is not just rebellion against Israel and Yahweh. And here's how we know that. Keep your marker here and turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. As you turn there, let me set the stage a little bit for the verse we're going to be reading. Obviously, this is early on in Acts. So the Christian church is a new fledgling movement. The apostles are preaching and doing miracles and winning souls. 
And the Jewish leaders are not happy about this. Because they're stealing converts. They're overthrowing everything Israel had set up. And so the Jewish leaders capture some of the apostles and tell them, you're done preaching Christ. And if you continue, things are going to go really bad for you. So they threaten them and then they let them go. And the apostles report back to the church and they tell the church what happened. They tell the church, our leaders have threatened to persecute us. So the church does what every Christian should do the moment you encounter crisis. They pray. The church comes together and they pray. And notice this amazing prayer of the early church. Acts chapter 4 beginning in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit... So let me stop us there. So they're going to quote something that David wrote, but they're going to recognize that David is not the only author of whatever David said and wrote. That it's ultimately the Holy Spirit working through David who wrote and spoke these words. Now what are the words that they bring into their prayer? Psalm chapter 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they quote what we just looked at in verse 27, application. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. So who is the anointed one in Psalm chapter 2? Not David, not Solomon. Jesus truly the text says truly they're saying this has been fulfilled this has happened the nations have raged against God's holy anointed one and it's not Solomon truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy anointed one Jesus whom you, your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed and then the text is further fulfilled who are the rulers Herod and Pilate so against the holy anointed one, Jesus, Herod and Pilate, along with who? The nations, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel. What is Psalm chapter 2 ultimately about? The crucifixion. God has anointed Jesus, and the rulers, Pilate and Herod, have counseled against him, and the nations, the, the Gentiles and the people of Israel, have come against him. All the nations are represented here, the rulers are represented here, the world has come against Christ. But where's the hope in all this? Look at verse 28. What did they ultimately do? They killed him. So did they win? They got what they wanted. They bursted their cords from the anointed one. They crucified him. Verse 28. Uh, they, they came together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The raging nations, raging against God and his anointed one, are merely pawns in the hands of a sovereign God. They're not doing anything God is not in complete control of. And by the way, why is this important to their overall prayer? 
Because look at what they say right after they say all this. Why did they affirm all this big sovereignty stuff? 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Here's why it's important for them in the midst of persecution to remember what they just remembered. They are recognizing that God is sovereign over persecution and that's why we're allowed to pray. If, if God is not sovereign over the raging nations, if he's not sovereign over the evil that comes about you, why do you pray? God, please deliver us from the evil ones who want to persecute us. And God's response is, I can't, bud. I'm a gentleman. I don't override someone's free will. I can't make them do something. You know, I might be able to throw a few hurricanes in there, maybe ground tremors open up the ground and try to judge some of them. But at the end of the day, I'm not in control of these people. What do you want me to do? No, they remembered, you see, the greatest persecution that's ever happened was the crucifixion and God was completely in control of that. So God is completely in control of whatever comes our way. So let's pray and ask him to do good by us. The sovereignty of God is the foundation of our prayer life. But getting back to the point, how do we see the early church led by the apostles applying Psalm chapter 2? Psalm chapter 2 is about Christ. It's about God and His Messiah and the nations, the world, desperate to sever the authority that Christ and God have. So as we turn back to Psalm chapter 2, how does God respond to all of this rebellion? How does God respond to this hatred of His rule and hatred of His Son? Is God nervous? Oh no, the nations are raging. There's so many of them. There's so many people raging against me. What am I going to do? Is he panicked? I love this. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. You know, I've noticed for those of you who have a social media, Facebook, one of the most humiliating and offensive ways to respond to someone is the laugh emoji. Someone tries to make a really serious point and you just laugh at it. It's an insult. It's an insult. You think you're serious, but you're nothing but a joke to me. That's what God says to the nations. God, verse 4, is God giving the laugh emoji to the rage of the nations. They rage and he laughs. God is not threatened by their rebellion. It's a joke to him. It's a joke. As a matter of fact, the text tells us he holds them in derision. Look up on, just do a Google search, what does it mean to hold in derision? This is a fancy way of saying he mocks them. God's making fun of us. The nations, the people who think, who have the audacity like the pride that built the Tower of Babel to think we have any control of severing God from our lives. That is what makes God bend over it with a belly laugh. God is not threatened by political division. He's not threatened by political uprising. He's not threatened by the rage of the nations. He doesn't break a sweat. 
But here's what's so powerful, though. The text tells us very specifically why God is so unaffected, unafraid of the nations. There are general truths to that question, common sense ones, if you believe in God, right? I mean, he's the creator. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. Of course, he's not afraid of the feeble, powerless creatures. I mean, he created galaxies out of nothing. Why would he be afraid of us? And those are all true answers. But that's not the answer the text gives. The text does not ultimately tell us, although I think it's in there, you could deduce from this, but the text does not ultimately tell us that the reason God is laughing is because he's the all-powerful creator and he has more power than us. The text tells us that God is not afraid because he has a Jesus. What does the text say? Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. So he's going to destroy their pride. He's going to shatter the nations and terrify them and reveal why he's been laughing at them all this time. And what is it specifically that he's going to do which boasts of his confidence? Verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I hate to give another pop culture reference, but I just can't help it. There's a famous line of movies, the Marvel movies. They're Avengers, they're superheroes, and basically you just take all of these different superheroes, and then they have these Avengers movies where they bring all of them together on one team. And there's this really famous line in one of the movies. Uh, it became a meme and a gif online, so people have seen it all the time. So even if you haven't seen the movies, if you have social media, you may have seen this. And basically what happens is one of the good guys is the Incredible Hulk. And the Incredible Hulk is really powerful and really strong, and he's basically unbeatable. And, uh, and so the, one of the bad guys is talking with one of the good guys, and he's trying to intimidate the good guy. The bad guy's trying to intimidate the good guy by boasting of his armies. Boasting, saying, from outer space are coming a, a, a horde of armies. We have thousands of troops and men. A whole army is coming to invade the earth. And the good guy looks at him and says, you have an army? We have a Hulk. It's the same as like, we have a Hulk. I, I, I'm not afraid. We've, we've got a Hulk. This is what God does in verse 6. Oh, you've got nations. You've got rulers and armies. And oh, I'm so afraid. I've got a Messiah. I've got a king. Why is God not afraid of the nations? Because of his son. God knows that who is the battle ultimately between the world and Jesus and he knows I know who's winning that battle. The son, my eternally begotten one who was with me in the beginning, who is God and has been with God, the eternal creator and maker of all things, God the Father knows they don't stand a chance against my son. God is laughing because he knows I'm going to set my king in Zion. Which, by the way, Hebrews chapter 13, might be 12, but I think it's 13, tells us that Zion, the holy city, was a type and shadow for the entire Christianized global world. He tells the people in the book of Hebrews, you have not come to the physical mountain, to the physical Zion, but you have come to heavenly Jerusalem, the spiritual, the new and better mountain. God is setting Christ as the king of the whole world. And that's why he's not afraid of the nations. 
he elaborates for us. What is Christ going to do then? Why is Christ giving God so much confidence? Verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is referenced frequently in the New Testament. The begottenness of the Son. And while we don't have time to get into, it's a very, it actually is a very complicated topic. Not complicated in the sense that it's hard to understand. It just requires a lot of explanation. But the point is this, is what it says that you are begotten. This is what Jesus, by the way, this is what God the Father speaks to Jesus after his baptism, after the transfiguration. And the book of Romans tells us that the resurrection was the ultimate final proof that Jesus was the begotten one. What's essentially saying is the begotten one is the anointed one. You are the special chosen one. You are the son of God. You are this special one that the Old Testament has been talking about. The son of God that the Old Testament has been anticipating. Jesus is it. God the Father is saying, yeah, you're it. This is it. He's the begotten one. He's my son. And Jesus right now is the one hypothetically speaking. And look at what Jesus says. Or forgive me, God the Father Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. What is Jesus going to do? What does it mean that the begotten one is the king? He's going to receive the nations. He's going to inherit the nations. Jesus is going to be given authority over all the nations. Jesus is going to have a kingdom that goes far beyond Israel. The whole world will be the kingdom of our king. He's not king of Israel. He's king of the world. He will receive the nations. And this was fulfilled in Jesus' day. Turn, keep your marker here. Turn to a famous passage I'm sure you've heard of a thousand times. Go to Matthew chapter 28. The reason I assume you've heard this passage is because this passage is essentially the mission statement to every single church. And for good reason. I don't mock that. This is what we call the Great Commission. This is what Jesus, the ultimate mission of the Christian people. Why are we here on earth? What are we doing here? That's the Great Commission, right? And you know, you probably, if you've been a Christian for some time, you know the Great Commission. Make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teach them all that I've commanded you. We are supposed to go out, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize those disciples, and then teach them about Jesus until we die. That's the Great Commission. That's what almost every church, we, you know, yada, yada, yada church exists to make disciples and to baptize them. I mean, that's what we're here to do. But you know what's interesting? Jesus is telling us in the Great Commission to go into the nations and change the people. But here's the problem. What if the authorities of the nations don't want us to do that? Who has the authority to tell me to go into China or Saudi Arabia and change the hearts and souls and the whole culture? Who has the authority to tell me to do that? The Chinese government give us authority to go baptize their people in the name of the Father? I don't think so. You think Saudi Arabia wants us going in there and baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit? I don't think so. Who does Jesus think he is? That's why we cannot forget the most important part of the Great Commission, which is the authority that grounds the Great Commission. Look at what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. 
And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. The the Christian church has no purpose unless Christ is king of the world. But Jesus says, therefore go, because I own everything. So I don't care what the Saudi Arabian officials say. I don't care what the government of China says. I don't care what the government of South America says. I own that government. That nation belongs to me. I'm the king of that nation, and I give you the authority to do whatever the gospel commands of you there. Jesus owns everything. Everything you see, everything you taste, everything you touch, everything you think about has a stamp on it that says, property of the Lord Jesus Christ. All authority, heaven and on earth, everything belongs to Jesus. He is literally king of the universe. There is no governor on the face of the earth, no president, no king, no dictator, who doesn't have an authority above him. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's going to do more than just inherit the nations. Back in Psalm chapter 2, he doesn't just have authority over them, he's actually going to exercise that authority. So what does the text tell us in verse 9? That after Christ receives the nations, what is he going to do? He's going to break them. You shall, verse 9, break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus is coming to squash the rebellion. He's coming to squash the rebellion. 1 Corinthians 15 says that at the ascension of Jesus, he sits at the right hand of God where now God is making all his enemies a footstool at his feet. Jesus has come to stomp out rebellion. That's why God was laughing. The nations are raging and says, one day my son is going to break you. With a rod of iron, a king's scepter, A shepherd's staff, he's going to discipline, correct, and conquer the nations that he has inherited. Which, by the way, let's let's, look at one more passage before we start wrapping this up with application. Turn to this famous Christmas passage in Isaiah chapter 9. You know this already. If you've experienced even one Christmas as a Christian, you know this whole message already. Because of this famous Christmas verse... And one of my fears is that this verse has become such a famous Christmas verse that we've lost the gravity of it. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. How does Isaiah prophesy the consequences of the coming king? Chapter, six, or me, chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts who will do this. What did Jesus come to do? To die for our sins? Of course. 
But he came to do so much more than that. He came to fulfill David's throne, to sit on David's throne in heaven and govern the world, be the authority of all government, and to slowly and, pro and progressively bring about his justice and his peace. Jesus is on David's throne and he is slowly but surely conquering the world, crushing his enemies, converting sinners, and bringing justice and righteousness here. He came not just to die for sins. He came to be the king of the world and to fix the world. He came to fix it. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us he's on his throne doing that right now. Jesus is winning the world. He's crushing his enemies under his feet and establishing justice and righteousness. And of the increase of this peace, of the increase of this government, there shall be no end. Back in Psalm chapter 2, Jesus came to destroy his enemies and to rule the world with justice. That's why God laughs. And then verses 10 through 12 is where David, where the, where the author comes into play. In light of all this, the author warns the nations about all these things. In light of all this, he says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Which, by the way, as a brief side note, is a really great way to think of how the posture of worship that we are supposed to bring on Sundays. Isn't this kind of interesting? We're supposed to rejoice with trembling. Doesn't it sound kind of contradictory? It's like, be fearful, but be happy. You see, when we come to God, we come with joy because he is good and he has been good to us and we love him and he loves us. That should make wellsprings of joy rise up from within you. But we do not lose, in our joy, we do not lose sight of the fact that he is holy and altogether beyond us and powerful and just. So we bring both reverence, fear, and joy to the table. And this is why we, by the way, we want our, our worship to reflect that. We don't want to ever become so happy, clappy, joyful, charismatic that we lose sight of the reverence and fear we need to have before God. But we also don't want to ever be so stiff and fearful and lifeless that people say, these people fear God, but do they enjoy Him? Do they love Him at all or are they just scared of Him? We want our worship to reflect both these. I am so joyful, but I am trembling with fear. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling, but this command is not for us, it's for all the nations, for the kings and the rulers. What is their job as king, as ruler, to serve Jesus? More than that, verse 12, kiss the son. This is a to reference to pay homage when kings would have rings and they would make their subjects kiss their rings as a sign of homage and obedience. They're saying, come to Christ, get on your knees and kiss his rings. And what happens if you don't? Lest he be angry with you and you perish. For his wrath is quickly kindled and blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So be fearful of perishing, but you will be blessed. You will enjoy him. It's not all fear. It's not all joy. It's both. So what is Psalm 2 ultimately about? It's about God conquering the disobedience of the nations by establishing Jesus as king of the world. That's what Psalm 2 is. So let us finish with the little remaining time we have. 
with three quick applications. How should Psalm 2 affect your heart and mind as you go into Tuesday? First thing is this. We learn something about how to interpret the world around us. What is all of this calamity? What is all this political chaos? At the heart and soul, you can peel back the layers and you can say, well, this is about, uh, you know, Republicans versus, conserv- or Republicans versus Democrats, conservative, liberal. You can, ha- you can interpret it however you want, but if you keep peeling back the layers, at the core, what's ultimately going on in the United States of America is open and active rebellion against God. This is ultimately not political at all. We are rebelling against our Creator. This is why, and this makes perfect sense, this is why we have things like transgenderism. There, I, it's hard for me to imagine something more disobedient to God than the wickedness of transgenderism. What is that ultimately saying? We want to burst the cords from God so severely that I don't even have to submit to how he made me. God made me a woman? No thanks, I'll be a man. Bursting that cord. This is rebellion against God. Our nation is rebelling. It's this common conservative talking point that politics is downstream of culture. That the culture will guide the politics. And that's very true. This is why you can have someone like Donald Trump who was not very against abortion before he was running for president and now he's potentially the most pro-life president America's ever had. This is why you can have a man like Barack Obama who was going into office very, very sure that marriage was between one man and one woman. And by the end of his presidency, he was all over that. Both of these men have drastically changed. Why? Because their bases have changed. Why? Because culture controls the politics. But here's the problem. That begs the question, what controls the culture? Anyone know what it is? Religion. The God that you serve dictates your culture. And your culture dictates your politics. So ultimately, your politics are a reflection of the God you serve. And what I am seeing in America is the God that 50% of Americans serve is government itself. Politics has become their God. They want their God to give them everything. Give me education. Give me health. Give me money. Give me this. They want government to be God. Anything but but God and His anointed. Anyone but God and His anointed. Give me a new God. Our nation is raging against God and His anointed. That's what's happening. It's important for us to remember that. But the second thing we remember is this. Christianity is political. Christianity is the most political movement the world has ever seen. And we have lived far too long in this country with Christians telling other Christians that the only way to be a true Christian is to remember you're not a citizen of this earth. You're a citizen of heaven. So you don't need to be caught up in politics. You don't need to be involved in politics. You don't need to care about politics. This earth is not your home. Christianity transcends politics. We're not about the politics. Folks, Christianity is the most political religion in the world. You know, it's so interesting. Let's talk about Christmas stories again. This isn't in my notes, but I I promise I'll wrap up soon. The Christmas story is filled with people being excited about the birth of Christ. 
Mary and Joseph, so excited. Elizabeth and John the Baptist leaping in her womb, Zechariah's prophecy, so excited. The angels and the shepherds, oh, the child, the whole story, the, the magi, we read the signs, we read the stars, the whole story is a bunch of people so excited for the birth of Christ, but there's one exception to that. There's somebody who's not excited at all about the birth of Christ. There was somebody who was very concerned about the birth of Christ. To such a degree, he tried to kill the son that was born. Who was that? A politician. A governor. The shepherds were excited. The peasants were excited. The sorcerers were excited. The politician was terrified. Why? Because he understood this is not just some Jewish fable. This is a king. And if he's a king, then that has political ramifications for me. He knew if this is a king, I'm in trouble. He did not say, well, he's a king of a spiritual world. And I'm the, I'm the leader of a physical world. So we're not going to intersect. We're not going to cross paths here. No. What does Psalm 2 tell us? It tells us that Jesus is not a spiritual king. He's not a metaphorical king. He's an actual king. He actually rules over the nations. They actually have to obey him. The Bible does not ever, in any sentence, any chapter, any portion, ever, does the Bible endorse secular governments. Secular governments are wicked. The governments are called to kiss the sun. Governments are responsible to obey Jesus as kings, as governors. Jesus has an authority, and that means that the Christian religion itself is political. We're not a creature of the politics. Politics didn't birth Christianity, and we have principles that transcend the politics, but politics and religion cross because our Messiah is king of it all. And you say, well, that sounds like separation of church and state. Aren't you crossing the boundary between separation of church and state? We're not, for two reasons. Number one, separation of church and state is a religious principle. The Constitution is not eternal. The principles in the Constitution, separation of church and state is actually not even in the Constitution, by the way. But let's just assume it is. The Constitution was created because there were other principles, objective principles, that created this fallible, finite document. The separation of church and state came from somewhere else. It didn't come from America. It came from Scripture. So if you want to, if your understanding of separation of church and state means we can't bring religion into this at all, then you have to abandon the separation of church and state. Separate church and state. Says who? On what authority? And the second thing, the problem is, is when the founders used that phrase, separation of church and state, they meant something by it. And our culture has redefined it. Our culture redefines it as the separation of God and state. The separation of church and state is not the same thing as the separation of God and state. None of our founding fathers believed God had no role in our politics. So what does this mean? It means that our leaders of this nation are expected to go into their office and the thought in their mind is, how do I honor the Lord Jesus Christ as President of the United States? How do I honor the Lord Jesus Christ as a Senator of the United States? We Expect our leaders to kiss the sun lest they perish in their way. And so what that means for us is that we have to be like verses 10 through 12. 
What did the psalmist do? After recognizing the authority of Christ, he told the nations, he warned the kings, he called the kings to kiss the sun. So the church has an important political role. And our role is to be a prophetic voice, to speak to our officials, to speak to our government, and to hold them accountable to the obedience of Christ. We do not tell them, well, you're a politician, so you have to take your Christian hat off and and be secular while you're a politician. And then in your own private time, you can be a Christian. No, we say you bring the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ into your office because he is king and he will destroy us if you don't obey him. Christianity is not an apolitical religion. It does not call us to be apolitical people. We are called to hold all of our leaders, no matter what party they claim to represent, all of our leaders are called to kiss the sun. And it's our job to call them to that. Christianity is highly political. Uh, I'll end this point with this quotation. One author put it this way, The message of Christ is about deliverance from sin and death. But do sin and death remain internally located in each individual soul? Or does sin and death ever come out? Do sin and death ever shape the polis? When people sin in three dimensions... And then they demand that the throne be established on unrighteousness. And they frame their sins with laws. And they tell a woman that she can dismember her child in the womb as a constitutional right. Does the church, with its message of sin and death, have anything to say about all this sin and death? The gospel is about how we repent of sins and are forgiven of sins. And that includes governors. That includes kings and presidents and dictators. Christianity belongs in government because Christ is the king of that government. The Constitution is not the highest law of this land. God in his word is because Christ is the supreme dictator over the entire world. So we are reminded that this is rebellion against God. We are reminded that we are called to bring Christianity to influence the culture, to influence the politics. And lastly, this will be brief, but it's perhaps the most important. We are reminded on this that God is sovereign. We learn that in Acts 4. We learn this in the laughing of God, the kingship of Christ. Folks, God is in control of what happens on Tuesday. I, you know, I've been hearing this all year long, these phrases. And I'll be honest, let me just admit my own sin here. I got so sick of hearing it. It seems so easy and trite. People saying, like, we're not voting for Jesus on Tuesday. Jesus is still king. No matter who's president, Jesus is still king. And I heard it over and over again to the point where I got annoyed of hearing it. But as I was studying this text, I repented of that because I realized, folks, that is very important for us to remember. Jesus will be king on Wednesday morning. God will still be sovereign Wednesday morning. Does this mean bad things can't happen? No. God was sovereign yesterday, and a pastor in Nigeria yesterday was abducted from his home and beheaded. So am I promising you that life is going to be comfortable because God is sovereign? No. Am I promising you the election is going to go the way you want it to go because God is sovereign? No. But what I am promising you is that we have a hope that transcends our political calamity. 
We have a hope knowing God is using all of this for our good and for his glory. And beyond that, we have a hope of what Psalm 2 says, that one day justice will come. The rebellion will be squashed. The nations will be broken. And the sinners will be judged. Everything our nation does, God is keeping tabs. And the judge of all the earth will do right. So we truly, truly, truly have no reason to panic. And that's not a talking point. It's not just some trite cliche. We really, we do not have reason to panic, no matter what happens. God is in control. He has set his king on Zion. So I conclude with this quote. Since, however, we do not see the enemies of Christ immediately broken in pieces, but on the contrary, the church herself appears to be the one broken in pieces. It appears that it is the church who is the frail earthen vessel under the iron hammer. Therefore, the godly need to be admonished to regard the judgments of Christ, which daily executes as a foreshadow of the terrible ruin which remains for all the ungodly. And we need to wait patiently for the last day when he will utterly consume his enemies by the flaming fire in which he will come. But until then, in the meantime, let us rest satisfied that Jesus Christ rules in the midst of his enemies. <laughs>